And oh, what peace I have found wherever I may be. Are you content with your calling? Vincent van Gogh, famous painter from the 19th century, apparently, you can't trust the internet these days, once said, your profession is not what brings home your weekly paycheck. Sorry, that slide's not meant to be there. Your profession is what you're put here on earth to do with such passion and such intensity that it becomes spiritual in calling. Van Gogh is simply articulating here what has become a common way of thinking in our world. This week, as I read a Thomas the Tank Engine book to my son, I read about how Thomas just wanted to be a really useful engine, and he wanted to have his own branch line. And so after a series of circumstances, he got that, and the story read like this. Now Thomas is as content as can be. He has a branch line all to himself, and he puffs proudly backwards and forwards from morning till night. The idea of calling has become so associated with what we do that the Oxford Dictionary defines calling this way. A strong urge towards a particular way of life or career, a vocation. And the word vocation literally comes from the Latin word for calling. Vocationem. So what I'd like to know is, when I ask the question, are you content with your calling, what comes to mind? Because given the way that our world talks and thinks about calling, I'd say that it's quite likely that one of the first things that you thought about was your job. Or perhaps what you would like your job to be. Or perhaps what you do with the majority of your day, whether you're paid or not. Or perhaps not what you do with the majority of your day, but what you do with the, the spare time that you have in hope that that would become the thing that you do with the majority of your day. In our passage this morning, Paul urges the Corinthians to live as the Lord has called them. And this morning, we are going to be looking at calling through three lenses, if you're taking notes. One, the calling of conversion. Two, the calling of circumstance. And three, the calling of Christ. Let's have our Bibles open and have open hearts and ears as we consider this passage. So firstly, the calling of conversion. Let's look at verse 17 together. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That is my rule in all the churches. You see, we can easily read this passage and think to ourselves, oh yeah, I get that, Paul. I've just got to live out my calling. God called me to be a teacher or a firefighter, so I'm going to be the best teacher or firefighter that I can be. 
But if you come at that verse with the understanding of calling that I just described at the beginning of this sermon, then you're going to miss how a Christian understands what calling is. You see, Paul uses the word call eight times in this passage, if you have a look. And he does through, he uses the term call throughout his letter and throughout his other letters, more often than not, talking about the call to salvation. That is the call of conversion, the call of turning from sin and believing in Jesus and becoming a Christian. This is different to a general call to the gospel. Uh, we can say that we call people to repent and believe, uh, and, and that is you know, proclaiming the gospel. We, we, we are calling people to it. So that's one sense of the word call. But here, we're talking about what theologians have uh, termed throughout history as an effectual call or, or an effective call, which is referring to the fact that God saves someone when He calls them. That, that it is, it's done. He calls and they are converted. Earlier in the letter in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, is a good example of this. You, say that you, you see, Paul says that uh, the Corinthians were called into the fellowship of his son. And so when Paul says that each person should live the life which God has called them to, he's referring to the Christian life. He's talking about the life that you live now that you are converted. The life that you live as a converted Christian. And this is just an extension of the principle that was in last week's passage. Uh, there Paul talked about the implications for a Christian whether you are unmarried or married. And now here he goes on to talk about living the cold life of a Christian in a couple of other circumstances. And this is Paul's emphasis throughout this whole chapter, particularly in this section, but also through all of chapter 7. Have a look at verse 20 with me. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And also jump down to verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So you see, Paul repeats this same instruction three times in the passage that we're looking at today, showing us that this is the guiding principle for the instructions that he gives. The situation you found yourself in when you, God called and converted you, he says, stay in that condition. So as, as we talked about last week, and we'll talk about again next week, whether single, married, slave, free, live the life that God has given you as one who has been called to Christ, as one who has been converted to Christ. Now tell me, is that how you see your day? Is that how you see what you do with your day? With each day that God gives you, do you think to yourself, here is another opportunity for me to be able to live my life as a Christian. To live as one who has been called and who has been converted to Christ. Or does the other hat that you wear take first priority? Is the first thing you think of in the morning and throughout the day, oh, I'm a doctor, I need to be thinking about my patients. 
Oh, I'm a parent. I need to be thinking about my kids. If you're a Christian, if you've been called and converted, your life is no longer your own. It no longer belongs to you. It is no longer about you. Think about what this means. Your purpose is in Him. Your joy is in Him. The whole point of your life is now in Him. Your life's triumphs, your life's struggles are in Him. Your glory is in Him. And just in case you think this is you know, only something for the hardcore Christians, that's not the case. Paul, as he's done once already in this letter, as we saw a few weeks back, he says this is his rule in all the churches. In all the churches. God wants you to know that every Christian right from the dawn of Christianity has always lived this way. So, to be clearer about my first question, let me rephrase it this way. Are you content in knowing that because God has called you and converted you, you can trust Him wherever He leads you? Whatever the life is that He has assigned to you, are you content knowing that you have peace wherever you may be? As a converted Christian, are you content to live life for God regardless of the circumstances? Now, if that idea sounds ridiculous to you, then the rest of the sermon is just not going to make a shred of sense. This is your first and most important calling. And if you haven't experienced this yet, if you haven't been converted, then you need to know that every other so-called calling that you might pursue in life, every other so-called calling that you might chase in order to find meaning and purpose and contentment will ultimately let you down. Just as the author of Ecclesiastes said, after living for himself, after denying himself nothing, as we heard in in our reading just before, whatever his eyes desired, he did not keep himself from them. He had everything, and he realized in the end that all of it was vanity. That it was a chasing after the wind. Only Jesus has living water that can quench the thirst your soul longs for. Only Jesus can complete your life. To not have Jesus is like trying to do a puzzle of the Mona Lisa without the puzzles that make up the Mona Lisa. Without the pieces. You might be able to make sense of the stuff in the background and the unimportant bits of that portrait but you'll be missing the point of the whole puzzle because the whole point of the puzzle is missing. It won't make sense. It's only when you see that Jesus is the whole point of life that you'll be able to make sense of life. And that brings us to point two. 
the calling of circumstance. And you need to say it that way. Paul tells the Corinthians several times to live the life that God has called them to. As we saw, he does it three times. In verses 17, verses 20, in verse 20 and 24. And so Paul then gives two circumstances in this passage of where those instructions are worked out. And those are circumcision and being a bond servant. We'll look at both of those separately. Read verse 18 with me. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Now, I think most of you are likely familiar with what circumcision is. Uh, And because the kids aren't in with us this week, uh, I actually could explain it, but I will spare you the awkwardness of having to do that. I reckon, though, that it's probably unlikely that most of us in the room don't know what epispasm is. And unless you do know what epispasm is, then I'm sure it was probably confusing for you to read that it was possible to have the marks of circumcision removed. Well, incredibly enough, it was and it still is possible through this procedure. And I won't tell you how. But for now, it's suffice it to say that it's worth just knowing that it did exist even in Paul's day and still exists today. Ancient Jewish historian Josephus writes about this very thing in his work Antiquities. He describes how some Jews wanted to be like the Greeks, and so he talks about how they hid the signs of their circumcision from them when they went to the gym, uh, which back then uh, was only for males, and it was where you trained in the nude, because the Olympics were also held in the nude. That's just how things were. And so they sought to do this very thing. They sought to hide the signs of circumcision. And Paul here, in this passage, deals with both those Jews who might want to be like Greeks and the Greeks who might want to be like Jews. As we've already seen, his main reasoning is because each person who's been converted should live the life God has assigned to them when he called them. And so just like he encourages the married and the unmarried in this chapter to just stay as they are, he says there's no need to seek a change of circumstance. Be content in the Lord. But he also gives us an extra reason regarding circumcision specifically as to why this is the case in verse 19. Let's read there. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Circumcision doesn't count for anything, nor does uncircumcision. Now, if you were a Jew, or if you had a Jewish background in Paul's day, and you, were, you, were, you, know, you had that in the Corinthian church, and you heard this line, you would have been absolutely scandalized. Seriously, Paul, how can you say that circumcision counts for Nothing? Nothing? Moreover, how can you pit that against keeping the commandments of God when circumcision is one of the commandments of God that we're supposed to be keeping? 
Well, if you've read Galatians, you'll know how Paul, how Paul, feels, how Paul feels about Christians who try to teach that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. And if you haven't, if you're not familiar with Galatians, then this is basically a summary of that book. Circumcision was a big problem in Galatia because some were teaching exactly that. And though the issue clearly wasn't as big a deal in Corinth, otherwise we might expect a bit more fire from what Paul is saying here, Paul still makes the same point in this letter as he does in Galatians. The ceremonial law that includes circumcision is no longer binding on the Christian. A Christian is converted by faith, not by works. They receive salvation through forsaking the world and trusting in Christ. That's why Paul can say circumcision counts for nothing. And why he says that you shouldn't get worked up about trying to change anything. Because it contributes nothing to your salvation or to your sanctification. What matters most is the work of the Spirit in a person's heart that saves them and now enables them to keep God's commandments by His grace. Can you hear what he's saying? Your works do not save you. Your works cannot save you. And on top of that, as Paul would eventually say to the Galatians in Galatians 3.28, your ethnicity or your social standing doesn't save you either. Regardless of what you were when you came to Christ, it is faith in Him that saves you. Jesus' death has made it possible for all people from all echelons in society, from all walks of life, from all backgrounds to be saved through faith in Christ. And this should give us great encouragement to share the gospel. It means there is no person that has fallen beyond God's reach. There is no background, there is no horrendous circumstances that somebody could have come from that can stop them from coming to faith in Christ. Maybe they have other kinds of marks on their body. Maybe they have tattoos from a former life. Maybe they have other religious or ethnic marks. They are not so far that God cannot save them. Every person everywhere can hear the gospel and respond. And if they do, then keeping the Lord's commandments becomes a natural outworking of their conversion. And striving to do so by His grace is a mark of their conversion. Change in outward form doesn't make someone a follower of Christ. Inner transformation does. Outward transformation doesn't make someone a follower of Christ. Inner transformation does. Now let me be very clear here. This doesn't mean that keeping the Lord's commandments has no visible outworking that people can see. For example, becoming a member at a church, gathering regularly, and discipling others throughout the week are all visible outward signs of a person who has been converted. 
growing in the fruit of the Spirit and crucifying the sins of the flesh show up in ways that change how you interact with others, that change how you talk about others. It changes how you respond to different circumstances and difficulties in life. Those things are outward and visible. But what this passage is saying is that you must keep looking to Christ for salvation and not to any outward form. In order to be saved, repent and believe. And Paul then moves on to another life circumstance that has significant implications. Let's look at verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now, I need to say a word here about the word bondservant. Uh, the original Greek word here is doulos, which is normally translated as slave. And the reason the ESV has chosen to translate it as bondservant is not because they're afraid of using the word slave, but because what we as 21st century Westerners often think about when we hear the word slave is the African slave trade that happened a couple of centuries ago. Those slaves were treated as property. They worked under terrible conditions and their owners could do with them whatever they could do with anything else they owned. African slaves were not considered equals. And so that is why Abraham Lincoln's famous Gettysburg speech finishes its very first sentence. You may know it, which begins with four score and seven years ago. Begins with, or oh, sorry, finishes with, all men are created equal. That was such a core part of the problem. But slavery in the Roman Empire and in Corinth was significantly different to that in several ways. Slavery usually, sorry, slaves usually lived with their masters and many of them were actually skilled. So many slaves, for example, were doctors or teachers or managers. Sometimes if a slave was offered freedom by a master uh, and if that master was well off or was quite influential, then the slave might actually even choose to remain with, as a slave with that master because, hey, they actually had a pretty good deal. It's a bit like starting your own small business when you've been working for a, a massive multinational company you know, and they've given you job security for years and so to strike out on your own and kind of be like, oh, I don't really know what that's going to be, you know, that can be a legitimately difficult decision. And I'll let you decide how much of that parallel carries over. So slavery in Paul's day, in, in Corinth, in this time, in this era, was actually just a given. It was an accepted part of the social ecosystem, and nobody questioned it, mostly because it wasn't the horrific picture of modern slavery that we know today. And so this is why the ESV has translated it bondservant to help us understand that there are differences between that slavery and the slavery that immediately comes to mind for us. But that doesn't mean that there was nothing bad about being a slave in Corinth. Though some slaves had the opportunities, like I've just mentioned, others in certain areas were treated like property. 
And regardless, actually, of how well a slave lived in their master's house, they were nonetheless still a slave. They didn't own the rights to their lives, and most slaves actually would have preferred freedom. And so Paul here gives them an extraordinary instruction. Do not be concerned about it. Do not be concerned about your slavery. Now, even though I've just explained that slavery was different back then, surely, surely most of us are taken aback by that instruction. Don't be concerned about it. Seriously, Paul, that's the best you've got? A person stuck in slavery and you're saying, don't be concerned about it? I mean, I can hear the, the passionate ones who are, who are zealous about social justice already pointing the finger and yelling, see, this is what's wrong with Christians. You talk about this message of love and hope and freedom when all you do is shake hands with the powerful and live large at the top of the pyramid and, and do nothing about the systems that continue to keep those who are most vulnerable, who are, who are in greatest need, oppressed. Well, let me say four things about that. Firstly, Part of the Christian's calling is to care for and to provide for those in greatest need. Most people, even non-Christians, know this. Matthew 25, 31 to 46 and Acts 4, 32 to 37 are just a couple of many examples and instructions in Scripture that tell us that this is a task that we ought to uh, devote ourselves to. Secondly, the Christian faith actually provides the, the philosophical tools for this kind of care for the most vulnerable to happen, both in terms of morality and humanity, both in terms of knowing that it is the right thing to do in or, to, to, to work for and care for and help those in greatest need, and not only that, but that they are human beings who are made in the image of God and therefore they ought to be cared for in a way that we don't care for other things, for other creatures. And these tools would actually become the tools that would eventually lead actual Christians to abolish slavery in society. But most importantly, thirdly, the point Paul is making here is that the converted Christian simply does not look at the world the same way everybody else does. If you find yourself thinking the same way that the world does on these issues and thinking that Christians should be doing a lot more about social causes, then I want you to consider this carefully. If you were able to end modern slavery and see millions of people live a better life, but none of them were converted to Christ, would you be content with that? If so, 
then my friend, your priorities are upside down. And no, this isn't about bumping up our census numbers or trying to, you know, bring more people into our tribe so that we can be bigger and more powerful or trying to get Christianity to take over the world. It's about the fact that as good and as necessary as it is for us to love our neighbours in this way, as important as it is that our faith causes us to actively serve the least of these in our societies, the greatest act of love that you can show to a person is to introduce them to the Saviour who loves them, who died for them, and who's made a way for them to live eternally with Him. The best, the most loving thing you can do for somebody is to save them from an eternity in hell. As well-known atheist Penn Jillette said once, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? As Christians, there is a necessary elevation of the proclamation of the gospel as a priority over that of meeting the physical needs of people. Now, please notice that I said elevation of priority. Doing that work of helping others, of caring for the poor, is still a necessary part of a Christian's life. And it can even be a crucial component of making disciples. But if we turn the church into a community that only engages in, or even primarily engages in social justice, then we've taken our eyes off eternal truth. Because the primary mission that Jesus has given us is to make disciples. Does that stir your soul? Does it cause you to reflect on your life and our cultural moment and realize that the greatest acts in history are not the ones that are going to be remembered for centuries or for thousands of years? They're the ones that will be remembered in eternity. As Christians, we view our lives now in light of the impact that they will make in eternity. We don't see the world the same way. Fourthly and finally, do you trust the sovereign God? This whole passage is dripping with the sovereignty of God. Remember in verse 17 that the life we live and the circumstances that we find ourselves in have been assigned to us by God. God is sovereign over all things. And if you struggle with that, then I encourage you to search Scripture, to speak to one of our elders and to bring that before the Lord in prayer. Because this is the very thing, the sovereignty of God is the very thing that makes it possible for even a slave to be content with their circumstances. When Paul says, do not be concerned, he's not saying, 
Just suck it up, homeboy. At least you're going to be able to get to heaven at the end of it. No. He's making a firm statement about the fact that every person, whatever circumstance that they are in, is there by God's will. And it is that fact that enables them to remain content where they are. It enables them to serve God with joy, even in the hardest of life's circumstances. Paul's point is not that God doesn't care about the hardship and the difficulty in your life, but that your circumstance is no longer something that should concern or control you. Why? Because you've been called and converted. As a Christian, you've received a treasure greater than anything this world could possibly offer. And this is why it's so essential to grasp the calling of conversion before talking about the life, the circumstances that God has called you to. If you haven't got those things in order, you are always going to be more concerned about your life's circumstances. If you don't see that you're a child of God first and that your hope and your contentment are in Him alone, then you will keep looking to your circumstances for fulfillment and contentment and you will keep being anxious about what your next move in life is going to be. How often do you wish that you weren't doing what you're doing with your time? Do you sit at work wishing that you had that person's job? Or getting anxious about whether your work has any meaning? Or are you working your tail off so that you can get a promotion? Will you feel like your life is a failure if you don't successfully achieve your so-called calling? It's so easy to let the world shape our hearts and minds, isn't it? It's so easy to buy the lie that if only I had that raise or if only I could get out of this job or if I could only actually discover what I was put onto this planet to do, then I will actually be happy and fulfilled. And, you know, the current generation of 20 and 30-somethings perhaps feels this the most. You know, we've been told our whole lives that we can change the world and that we can be or do whatever it is that we want to be. And now that we're starting to realize that actually that's probably not true, our world is caving in. Don't buy the lie. You weren't put on this planet solely or even ultimately for the purpose of creating art or helping people or stopping injustice or stopping climate change. No, you were put on this planet to know God and to spend all of your days glorifying Him. Of course, some of those things might be a part of that, but they are never first. Never. Are you content to live for God in the job, in the role, in the school that He has placed you in? 
Now, to be sure, this doesn't mean that you can't seek to change your circumstances. Paul himself says to the slave, hey, if you can gain your freedom, which, by the way, was something that they couldn't just get themselves, the master had to grant it to them. And Paul is saying, hey, if if you can get that, then sure, fine, get it. But realize that you're not suddenly going to be more free than you were before. Yeah, you'll have freedom in your day-to-day life, But if you have Christ, you already have the freedom that matters. Don't pine after that possibility. Don't long for that other thing, thinking that a supposedly meaningful profession is going to liberate your soul in a way that Van Gogh thinks it can. Rather, Paul says, live for God where you are. This ought to give all of us serious pause when we make decisions about our lives. You know, interestingly, Paul is telling the slave who had very few options that, yeah, you can take the opportunity to be free if you want to. There's nothing wrong with that. But I wonder... Do we have the opposite problem? In our world, certainly for most of us here, we have a whole lot of options in terms of what we can do with our lives. Ours isn't a case of taking that one opportunity of change that might become available to you. And, you know, we should think about whether we're willing to take that or not. No, our situation more often than not, is one where we're faced with many opportunities given to us. And the question is whether we're content with the one that we currently have. Are you quick to look for the next thing? Do you think seriously? Do you pray fervently and and devote to God what your next big move is going to be? Or are you more likely to say, without even a second thought, I'm sick of this job, I need something new, I need a change, time to move on. In Darwin, we face this all the time, don't we? I mean, this is a city full of people who are seeking a change or who are just here taking a job, you know, so that they can, uh, you know, no, get, a, get a promotion back home or upskill or whatever it might be. This is a city full of people who don't commit to Darwin because most of them have got one eye on the next flight out. Except for perhaps a few of us, I'm sure that we have all had that thought. Perhaps you even still have that thought. Now, I'm not saying that this passage is telling you to stay in Darwin. But if that's what you're hearing, then please hear it. (laughs) I'm not saying this passage is telling you to stay in a job that you hate. But are you getting the point? What is it that drives the decisions you make about what you do with your life? 
Is it a discontentment with what you have now and a hope that a change will somehow make your life better? God is telling us to trust Him in the life and the calling that He has on us now. And He instructs us to live for Him where we are, being content in knowing that we belong to Christ. How can you serve God? How can you grow in Him where He currently has you? Maybe there's an opportunity to show God's love to a co-worker who doesn't know it. Perhaps there are ways that you can represent Christ well in, the, in doing diligent work. Perhaps God is teaching you to grow in love for that co-worker who is so unlovable and gets on everybody's nerves, but who is still headed to an eternity in hell and who could be one of the elect and that it is God has placed you there to, to proclaim the gospel to them. For all of us, at the very least, God is teaching us to be content in leading the life that He has given us. Some of our members are facing significant challenges in their work right now. One in particular could have serious consequences depending on how he applies his faith at work. He's had to wrestle with the fact that his faith might even cost him his job, which is something that he has spent years, years and years and years training for, building up. Yet he remains content in Christ. Knowing that God is sovereign over his circumstances. Knowing that his career isn't the point of life. God has called us to live knowing that we belong to him. Because ultimately, we're not slaves of any person or any institution. We are slaves of Christ. And that brings us to our final point. The calling of Christ. Let's read verses 22 to 23. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. You were bought with a price. Once again, Paul uses the same sentence that he used at the end of chapter 6. But here it takes on a slightly different hue as he puts it in the context of slavery. How is it that a Christian can joyfully serve the Lord no matter what their circumstance is, even if they're slaves? Because even if they might be owned by a man on earth, they are ultimately owned 
by no earthly man at all. And that's because Christ has bought them with his blood. Paul pulls the slave up and he brings the freedman down in verse 22. As a slave, you are free in Christ. As a freedman, you are a slave of Christ. Now, of course, both are free in Christ and both are slaves of Christ. But do you see the point of the imagery? Paul is saying your earthly status doesn't matter. Every person who is in Christ has the same status. Xi Jinping, he might be the most powerful man in Asia, but if he has not bowed the knee to Christ, he is still a slave of the world. Taylor Swift, she might be the most powerful woman in pop culture, but if she has not bowed the knee to Christ, she is still a slave to sin. That person whose life that you wish you had, they might seem to be better off than you in some areas, but if they haven't bowed the knee to Christ, they are still a slave to the gods and idols of this world. And if they have bowed the knee to Christ, you have the same heavenly status as them. Don't you see? It is only when you put your whole lot in with Jesus that you will ever find contentment in life. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. It is only when you respond to His call that you can be truly free by becoming His slave. This is the call of Jesus. This is the call to eternal life. This is the call to life in all of its fullness. The call of turning from your sin, of breaking away from being a slave, enslaved to the ways and to the wisdom of God, of the, of the world and of men, and trusting Jesus with your life, with your circumstances, and with your vocation. You were bought with a price. Do you know what that price was? It cost God His only Son. It cost Jesus His life through an excruciating death on the cross. And not only that, but on that cross, He received the full force of God's wrath the penalty for our sin, so that you and I could repent and believe in Him. You were bought with a price. Have you considered that price? Does the gospel... Does this good news of your salvation 
still stir up waves of gratitude in your heart. Because you know that without it, you would be hopelessly lost. Do you look to Jesus and do you see his awesome love for you? And do you see how he laid down his life for you? How he has become a slave, as Philippians 2.7 tells us. Do you look to him, knowing the freedom that you have in him? And do you joyfully live now as his slave? Or has the magnitude of the price that Jesus paid for you now become such a small, common thing in your mind that you're ungrateful for it? And that, as a matter of fact, you'd prefer that Jesus actually just give you some good things in your life. You were bought with a price. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know why we're so discontent with our day-to-day lives? Why we struggle to find happiness in them and always default to just being anxious about our circumstances? It's because we too easily forget what Christ paid in order to save us. When you forget that, being a slave of Christ doesn't seem like such a great deal after all. It doesn't seem like such a beautiful exchange after all. When you forget that, (laughs) you will only begrudgingly accept the life that God has given you rather than joyfully receive it and joyfully rest in Christ in it. Now, hear me out. (laughs) I understand how challenging this is. I struggle with my own lack of contentment in my circumstances, wanting more, wishing for more. And yes, I also struggle with the question of why on earth am I in Darwin of all places? I get that. I understand that. But if the only, or if even the the first thing that we do when we try to encourage each other in this is to say things like, oh look, your job's not that bad. Or to say things like, it could be worse. Hey, try and look on the bright side of life. Actually, you know what? Yeah, you're right. You need to change. Pray pray that God will give you another job. If that's our primary means of encouragement, if that's the first thing we say, the first thing that we want to say, then we're not trusting the sovereign God. We need to encourage our brothers and sisters And point them to God's goodness and His providence and to the call of Christ. 
We need to realize that no other life circumstance or life calling or vocation can bear the weight of our needy souls. Every other pursuit will eventually be seen for what it is. Vanity, a chasing after the wind, meaningless. Only the call of Christ can fill the puzzle. Only the call to be His and to be His alone can bear the weight of our needy souls. And so we must encourage one another primarily with that good news. We must spur one another on to endure, to look to Jesus, to look to our good shepherd who laid down his life for us, who bought us, who gives us fullness of life, and to the one who gives freedom from bondage to sin and life in him. And by God's grace, through his spirit, I pray, I pray that we will lean on God in every circumstance that He has placed us in because we see His goodness in Christ on the cross. Are you content with your calling? The late Stephen Hawking theoretical physicist and atheist once said never give up work work gives you meaning and purpose and life is empty without it without Christ your life will be empty and you'll fill it with something But whatever you fill it with ultimately won't satisfy and ultimately will lead to death. Both in this life and in the next. Trust in Jesus. Turn to Him. Because in Him you'll find forgiveness of sin eternal life and contentment in the life God has given you now. How will you lead that life that He has assigned to you? Let's pray. Father, we confess that the pull and the tug of this world, its thinking and its sin and its idolatry, pulls on our hearts. And we so quickly and easily forget. We so quickly and easily forget the price that you paid to buy us. Please, Lord, help us to see 
that being a slave to Christ is true freedom. And Father, help us to lead our lives every single day looking to him and trusting in him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.